Oh boy. All right. Ooh, that was pretty. Party men. Masters of oh, I got it first. I gotta turn off all of my notifications that scream all day. Okay. Check, check, check. Play without a mic. Play without a mic. Do you hear any foreign sounds coming from my end? Mm -mm. I don't think so. Nice. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Story Men Podcast, episode 181. I am Clay Morgan. I'm J.R. Foresteros. And I am Matt Michelottos. Matt Movie Lottos. Matt Movie Lottos. <laughs> Movie Michelottos. That's true. We are the Story <laughs> Men. We are also writing and podcasting over at NorfolkRogers.com. It is almost Oscar season, guys, and we have a guest that will be here. His name is Josh Larson, talking about his new book, AJR. Yeah, the book is called Movies Are Prayers. And I, okay, so we bring a lot of authors on the Story Men, and most of the time they're books that we hope that the story fans will read and enjoy. This is a book that I'm pretty sure if you listen to the Story Men, I guarantee you, you will enjoy this book. Like it comes like pre-loaded, ready for Storyman fans uh, to enjoy immensely. Josh is a film critic and uh, the book is essentially, as you'll hear in the interview, all about how to read films through a Christian lens. It's fantastic. Yeah. And we've been talking about having Josh on for a while. So it's great that we finally worked it out to get him on today. So I'm excited to interview him. So, Sweet. At, as many of you know, we've started a kind of a new tradition here at the Story Men of sharing an article or some little bit of news that stuck out to us during the week. So mine this week is actually, it rarely happens, but it's actually an article from Christianity Today. It's an interview with Rachel Denhollander, which uh, if you know that name, she's one of the gymnasts, actually the gymnast who brought out the, uh, the whole sex uh, abuse scandal that's been going on in the American uh, gymnastic world. Uh, what's amazing about this interview is during the court proceedings, she was talking about how she lost her church as a result of her accusations against this doctor. And the uh, Christianity Today interviewer really presses in on that and says, tell us, tell us about that. Why is that? And she talks about what it's like to be someone who's been sexually abused in the church and why her speaking up about that made it impossible for her to continue at the church she was at at the time. And it's all wrapped up with other Christian sex abuse scandals uh, from recent history. So it's well worth your time. Really interesting stuff. Interesting. I saw uh, one of the guys from CNN shared her her testimony on uh, uh, on Twitter. And he said, dear ESPN, she may be the best candidate for the Arthur Ashe Courage Award you've ever had. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, amazing lady. Well, mine is much less serious than that. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. and, 
So I'm just going to pivot without a good segue, which, you know, is <laughs> typical of me. Great. <laughs> uh, news broke this week that they are in production on Passion of the Christ 2. Uh, Mel Gibson is, is filming it, is directing it, and Jim Caviezel is reprising his role as Jesus the Christ. Wow. And apparently it's going to be all about the resurrection. <laughs> Wait, so, what? Oh. Sequel? Yeah. Of all the, the movies te- that I would not have expected to... Is the resurrection part of the passion? I think this was a big argument at one point. I mean, there's like, literally like a five-second clip of it at the very No, end. I mean like the, mm. the religious term, the oh. passion of the Christ. Isn't that referring to Passion Week, like the suffering and the, et cetera? Yeah. Well, yeah. So if you're, if you're a Roman, uh, Roman tradition, which is like basically everyone in the West, uh, then pretty much the cross is, is what it's all about. And if you're an Eastern Christian, it's really all about the resurrection. Uh, there's actually a pretty sharp divide between Eastern and Western theological traditions in that way. So uh, I am supremely confident that Gibson has not thought about that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm I am real interested in seeing where this goes, especially because it can't be super bloody and gory, which is kind yeah. of what Gibson likes to do. So I mean, um, probably not. OK, I wouldn't think so. Maybe maybe the Romans at the tomb will kill each other. Uh, or Question. something. If I, I if I haven't watched the first movie, will I understand the second one? I mean, most people didn't understand the first movie <laughs> unless they read the book it was based on first. So oh, okay, the book's better. Okay, good. Yeah, good to know. Yeah. So so anyway, <laughs> there you go. Passion of the Christ yeah. two coming eventually to a theater near you. Well, that brings us to my article. Hey guys, guess which movie from 2017 earned almost exactly as much money as the Passion of the Christ did worldwide? Uh, that hot dog Ooh. movie. Uh, Spider-Man Homecoming? Nope. Get out. Well, no and... Get out. No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Actually, you know, The Passion made $611 million, which is almost spot on what Star Wars The Last Jedi earned last year. But my article comes from CNN, money.cnn.com. And it's uh, stating, not a shocking fact, but an interesting one, that all of the Best Picture nominees combined for this year's Oscars pulled in about $2 million less than what The Last Jedi earned on its own. So you, if you combine all the Best Picture noms, they made $609 million. And uh, it's an interesting segue, perhaps, to our conversation today, because it used to be once upon a time in Hollywood that kind of the biggest movie of the year was the biggest movie at the Oscars. And we have long since departed from that model. Have we not? Interesting. Was that, uh, is that true that, that, that I always, I mean, as far as I've ever remembered best pictures, I guess, except for like something like Titanic, which honestly felt like an anomaly. Um, they were, it, it tended to be that they were more like art house films. Uh, I don't know. I mean, by the 90s, it started to change probably for most for all of our uh, movie aware lives, uh, I would say. Um, and certainly these films that are made on low budgets, uh, the, the article references a couple like The Artist and Slumdog Millionaire. They go on to bank tens of millions of dollars more after they win. Yeah. Right. right. Um, but yeah, if you go back and look at the list, it, it would be. Um, not a whole lot of what we would consider, you know, art house films or box office failures. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, uh, 
Uh, that is a good segue to our interview. Uh, we're going to bring on Josh Larson now. Josh is the co-host of the podcast Film Spotting. He's the editor of Think Christian, which is a digital magazine on faith and culture. Uh, previously, he spent 11 years as a film and entertainment critic for the Chicago-based Sun-Times Media. So we're really excited uh, to talk with Josh about all things movies and especially some Oscar stuff. Today's episode of the Storyman podcast is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. We recommend some of our favorite books all the time, and at the end of the show, we have a couple of suggestions. But Matt said, The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemisin is amazing, and you could download The Fifth Season for free by going to audibletrial.com slash thestoryman. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash thestoryman. Now on to our interview. Josh Larson, welcome to the Storyman podcast. It is an honor to have you with us. Well, thanks for having me, man. Uh, one of the Storyman traditions we have for our first-time guests is we always ask them to display their geek credentials because we are all huge geeks. And so oh, yeah. uh, is, is there a- anything that makes you a geek? <laughs> anything stand out? <laughs> like you would write a whole book about? Yeah, let me choose. Yeah, right. So obviously <laughs> movies, but I, you know, and I'm I'm kind of an omnivore otherwise in terms of pop culture. Do you guys are you allowed to talk about like the sports ball? Because I might right now claim I'm in <laughs> an NBA. To be honest with you, the NBA is the thing I'm I'm really oh, getting oh. way too into lately. Wait a second, I was just about to say, Josh. Yeah, absolutely. I finally have someone to talk sports with, but then you. But you bring Clay the only NBA? likes hockey is the problem. I mean, he only likes hockey. That's it. The NBA. You, I'm starting to learn about hockey, but I don't. I don't have time in my life for another major sport. So I'm kind of sure you do. You just cut out the NBA and you put the NHL in place. <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> he said he wanted something with a ball. There's no ball in hockey. Exactly. I have strict rules. Uh, no ball. NBA is exciting. I mean. There's something new breaking every week and a lot of young talent and the game is faster than ever. Um, so we're just going to talk NBA the rest of this, right? So who's your, who's your That's team? Right. Who's your? <laughs> Grew up, no, no. Grew up in Chicago area and kind of came of basketball playing age when the Bulls drafted Jordan. So um, yeah. you couldn't ask for anything better than that. The, the dynasty was while I was in high school and college. So not, you know, the greatest thing right now to be a Bulls fan. I, I've somewhat adopted the Milwaukee Bucks this year just because they're much more exciting. But that hasn't really gone as a, as expected. So um, so I'm kind of watching all sorts of teams this uh, this season. You're the first person to ever say basketball for your geek credentials. <laughs> and everyone That's is awesome. welcome here. <laughs> uh, so I Josh, want to talk to our screeners oh. about it, but I think it's fine. <laughs> so Josh, you're in you're in good company here in the story. I mean, we we have all been longtime movie fans, but I'm curious how you, uh, particularly as as a believer, came to came to be a movie critic specifically. I think that's a job that a lot of people always wonder, like, how do you get that job? Yeah, and it was a job that I I wanted to have fairly early on and maybe even like middle school because I was always a, a film fan came from a family of movie fans. And at that point had started to realize that 
I, you know, one of the things I enjoyed most in school was reading and writing. So certainly by high school, those two things came together. And I thought, especially being in the Chicago area where, you know, Roger Ebert is writing for the Sun-Times and Siskel Niebert is on TV, um, you know, they went national eventually, but uh, it was just like, hey, I want to do that. So, so it was really something I thought about and worked towards from that point on. So what, uh, how about being a Christian critic? Like, is that extra dicey was, or was writing to be an explicitly Christian critic part of the goal? Like what, how does that work in? Or is, is that a big deal as part of, part of what you do? I mean, obviously in your book it is, but. Yeah, right, right. But it was at that point, you know, early on, it was probably, uh, probably the opposite. (laughs) When I left college, Ah. I kind of wanted to go the other direction. And it, it was only because I really, my early experiences of what I guess you would call Christian film criticism at that point was they were not encouraging. This would have been, you know, mid nineties. So the height of the culture wars at that time. Mm -hmm. And I had gone to, uh, I was, I'd gone to Christian schools my whole life, including a Trinity Christian college. And I went on a program through Trinity to LA, sort of a semester long film studies program. And an internship was part of that. So I interned with a critic, Michael Medved, and, you know, that was, uh, that was good in a lot of ways, but he was also very much on the, I think he wrote Hollywood versus America a few years before that. So very much on that side of things and the opportunities I saw in writing about film were count the square swear words, you know, um, those sorts of things. Right. An early assignment literally gave me a sheet where I had to keep track of offensive elements. And I just thought, I don't even know how to do this. I I've never thought about film this way. So it was kind of something I, I just decided I'm going to go the other direction because that felt more natural. It, It didn't feel like a conflict with my faith. I was still writing out of my experience and who I was. Um, and so, you know, I pursued jobs in the mainstream press and, and that's where I worked for the majority of my career until really 2011 when I joined Think Christian. So Josh, what was it? Uh, was there a particular film that was kind of like your epiphany or was it a series of just a years where you realized you loved movies so much? What, what were some of your cinematic awakening moments? Yeah, you know, having grown up, like I said, in a um, family that loved movies, it was kind of a gradual thing, just uh, being immersed in them and uh, just a a huge, fun part of life. Uh, I think, you know, I'm also of the Star Wars generation. um, So, of course, that's where I had some of those experiences in a movie theater. And then, you know, you begin to realize that there's a lot more going on than entertainment to movies as well. Maybe... Maybe the Coen Brothers Miller's Crossing, which I believe mm-hmm. is new or eighty-eight. I can't. Or no, I think it's ninety. Actually, nineteen ninety was one of the first times I was sitting in the theater and realizing, you know, that there were directors making specific choices behind the scenes, and and I started digging more into films uh, from that perspective. Nice. That's awesome. So I have to ask before we get into the book. Um, proper uh because we get this all the time and i'm sure you as a film critic who writes for a a christian publication and who just is christian in the world but it's rated r yeah (laughs) like like how do you how do you respond to that 
Yeah, yeah. You know, as if the MPA ratings are helpful in any way, really. But <laughs> um, I, think, I think the first thing to say is that um, the reason people ask that is because they want to do, generally, the reason people ask that is because they want to do discernment. And discernment is, ab- is, per- is you know, it's, it's important. Uh, it's something we should be doing and we should be practicing. So I respect the motivation behind the question to begin with. Um, I don't think a lot of people think about discernment as being something that's also personal, however. And, and by that, I mean, um, you know, a film that may cause someone to struggle in their faith walk for whatever reason they might struggle, um, is going to be a different film for me than you, than someone else, you know, depending on what that content is. So, so discernment is something that's, you know, good to do, but I don't know that something just being rated R is a helpful way to do that discernment. Um, so that's one answer. Another answer I would give is that, uh, yes, there are, you know, bad quote unquote, bad things in movies, but often the good that is in a movie is right alongside them. So it's, it's not so simple as to just, you know, just go see things that are G and everything will be safe. And if all those things in the R rated movies are terrible, you know, it's, it's much more complicated than that. Uh, and, and then to, you know, to circle back to the idea of the, the book, if movies are prayers, um, prayers are rated r i mean i i my, you know i i use the wrong words bad words um if you expand prayer beyond you know what we do in church with people around us but to what we rage about what we speak in anger to god about um my prayers are imperfect i, I fall asleep <laughs> when i'm praying you know <laughs> the, the, these are not like holy things i'm offering and so if you're Uh, I mean, there are holy elements, I would hope, to them. It's a holy act I'm attempting. Uh, But if you look at movies in the same way as being like prayers, well, they're imperfect too. So there there are going to be ways they speak to God that are, um, you know, are troubling alongside ways that are encouraging. Okay, so I I love your book, by the way. And obviously the main sort of intro idea is this idea of movies being prayers. Uh, that they're communications to God in some sense, which you, you just kind of like laid out. So talk to us about when films are made by non-Christian artists, in what way are those prayers? Yeah, yeah, because that that's kind of the sticking point, right? And, and that's really the underlying thesis of the book, is I try to spend the vast majority of my time on films that are not um, quote unquote religious. They're, they're not religious in theme or story or narrative or anything like that. Um, I, I guess, you know, there's a very broad understanding of prayer an assumption that I make that elemental human expression is a prayer. So you can go really wide like that and say, whatever we're expressing, whether we're lamenting, or as I mentioned, we're, we're expressing anger, um, or we're just saying, wow, you know, we're looking at creation and just saying, wow, even if we're not a believer or specifically directing that towards God, God hears those of us who are believers understand that, that God hears all of these expressions. So you have the very basic dynamic at work there. Whenever someone wonders, what is this place here? Um, and then I do burrow down to the idea that 
there can also be very specific prayers from the Christian tradition, you know, drawn from models in the Bible. So here's where we get to prayers of praise or lament or confession. And for me, it comes together when a film that is not specifically religiously religiously minded or intentionally religious manages to express some of those things like confession, like praise. And I lean a lot on the, the thinking of um, a Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper, who, who talked about common grace. You know, the idea that God has blessed uh, all of his creatures with uh, creative gifts and uh, allows his truth and beauty to be found throughout the whole world. He's sovereign over all of the world. And so we can see glimmers of his truth throughout it. So, Josh, we did a we did a show a while ago now, it seems like, where we were tackling this question of what is a Christian movie and how some some films are, are deeply meaningful in a, in a Christian spirituality way to us that would have never been marketed that way. And I know we're going to talk about a couple of specific movies you discuss in the book going forward. But just in the same way that maybe Miller's Crossing was the first one of the first films where you really saw those choices and the, and the deeper levels of movie making. What was one of the first movies where you got that sense that movies are prayers? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it started with being like Chinatown. I remember it was one of the first ones I started teasing this out, which I identified as a prayer of lament. And, you know, yeah. talk about a, a hard R movie. Right. That's not one that probably most people are expecting to come out, right? No, no. But what I resonated with is, you know, the despair that's in that film um, just sounded so similar to the despair that you feel in some of the Psalms um, and that you hear from fellow Christians in their prayers in church. Um, our church has recently, the last year or two now, ha had a specific, we've added a service of lament. Um, and this is right around the time of Advent. So a bit of a, bit of a counter, uh, you know, to what normally you might think of as Christmas time services. And what we hear in those services of lament are often these guttural cries of anguish, of, of, of just raising things up to God, that a movie like Chinatown, which, which ends that way. It ends by saying, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. Uh, in other words, we can't do anything about this. And that's what lamenting is. Yeah. Spoiler. It's not a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it depends on who you are. <laughs> uh, so, um, one of the, so one of the things that I think really, uh, struck me as I read your book was how respectfully, you treated these films as conversation partners. And I think a lot of times when people imagine Christians going about uh, the the art of, of crit film criticism, it feels, and I, I, maybe maybe I mean this more just because I'm a pastor and I'm, I'm reading through the lens of, uh, you know, the, the pastors using movie clips in their sermons. It feels like there's like a colonizing impulse where, you know, this, this movie has a dad in it. So I'm going to talk mm -hmm. about God as our father, mm -hmm. even though the movie's not trying to talk about that. Um, and, and I'm just, I'm curious. It, it seems like you've really, uh, your journey towards film criticism, 
criticism began as an intuitive thing where this just felt natural to you. And I'm, I'm curious how you have, have you ever wrestled with that colonizing impulse or have you, has that always been something that seemed foreign and, and bad to you? Uh, or, or, I mean, surely again, you've had to interact with that just being a Christian and a critic. I've absolutely wrestled with it and, and probably still do to a degree. I'm glad, you know, the book that you don't detect that in the book, it was something that I was worried about and tried to avoid. And I, I still probably fall back into that, to be honest with you. Um, you know, the intuitiveness probably comes from the fact that I did first practice film criticism as a mainstream film critic. So, so I was able to, to do that and work that way long enough that I had built up those skills. But I'll tell you when I, when I came to think Christian in 2011 and, and had to really figure out what does it mean to write a Christian film review now, um, I struggled with it. And if you look back at some of those earlier pieces, I'm sure I do what you're, t- I'm doing the sermon illustration thing, you know, <laughs> and, and I probably fall back on that from time to time now, because it is, it is sort of the, the easy route to take. Um, one thing I try to remind myself, and I, I really try to do in the book that I think is helpful to avoid that. Uh, and it speaks to what you were saying, Jar, about, you know, having films be conversation partners is let them speak first. Um, and one way to do that is to really pay close attention to the aesthetics of a movie. Um, so that this goes back to that idea of realizing that a director is making choices and the cinematographer is making choices. The editor is making choices. The actors are all of these elements. It can be costume or, or, you know, production design green. Why was it put there by the filmmakers? And then once you've identified that you can respond in that conversation by saying, and here's what it means to me as a Christian. Here's what it made me think about in relation to my faith. But I'm not bringing that faith and plopping it on the movie. I'm letting the specifics of the movie provoke that theological reflection within me. So it's kind of trying to reverse the dynamic a little bit. Um, and that, that's not an easy thing to do either. So, so it is something I, I still struggle with. So in the book itself, you have nine different kinds of prayers that you identify. And I thought it would be fun to just kind of take a couple of them, because uh, obviously I want to spoil the whole book, uh, and, and, and go to some movies that I was, uh, I was pleasantly surprised uh, that you identified. I thought, it was, again, I, just, I had so much fun reading the book, because I was just like enjoying how creative and clever and insightful these were. So uh, first of all, you talk about prayers of praise. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about specifically what makes a prayer a prayer of praise as opposed to one of the other eight forms? Sure. And yeah, as I dug into these individually and, and got more specifically Christian about it, I did want to spend time, and this was educational for me too, to, to consider exactly what you're asking. Okay, so what what is a prayer of praise? And it, And I think what we find in the Bible is that, first of all, praise is our created purpose. So if you think of like Isaiah 43, uh, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise, uh, we have that model right there. But I think what you'll also find when you look at uh, prayers of praise in the Bible is that um, that's not a burden for us, right? Sometimes it's characterized as that. It's like our duty to praise God when the Bible really describes it as a, as a delight. So it it's something to do with, you know, this joy we can feel when we rightly recognize the hierarchy of the universe and, and we recognize our place in it and can say, 
we're not here to run things. We don't have all the answers. Those have that's all been provided for us, and and in return, we give God praise. So, so I kind of use that as my starting point for how movies might be prayers of praise. Okay, can we uh, can we talk about Avatar for a minute then? Because that's one you put in this category. Yeah, absolutely. Um, only only if you're pro Avatar, so, though. <laughs> be eighteen more movies, so I have to at least be open minded about Avatar. I would say. Um, okay. So Avatar, beautiful movie, so gorgeous about going to this planet that's sort of like an Eden, and uh, but it has resources that we, meaning humans, really need. And it's really about this conflict between the technological coming into this pristine, beautiful, kind of perfect culture. Um, we came out. There was a specific evangelical pastor who's pretty well known or was at the time for making really strong pronouncements about books and movies he hadn't read or seen. And one of the things he said about this movie that was the most satanic movie ever but you're saying it's a prayer to God, uh, a, a praise prayer uh, in addition. So I guess my question is, where do you stand on the whole Satan thing? And uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> how does that work? Like, how is Pandora, how, how is Avatar a movie about praise? Or a prayer I, about wow, praise? I, I thankfully missed all of that. I, I have no idea what you're referring to. And and honestly, I was under the impression that, uh, oh, I just learned this a few weeks ago. I was of the impression Oprah was satanic. Uh, after oh. her Golden Globe speech, <laughs> yes, uh, we wrote positively on Think Christian about her Golden Globe speech, and, and I was um, well, corrected. How dare you, that. sir? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> corrected many times um, online oh, wow. and on Facebook and um, told that apparently Oprah is satanic. So, um, <laughs> so as far as Avatar goes, um, yeah, I, I focused on what you described, the the beauty of creating this completely fictional world, you know, one that wasn't based in comic books or existing myths or anything, but it was this, this, you know, brand new, beautifully created with computer animation um, and all other forms of artistry. And that was what over on the film is what James Cameron and his animators were able to do. And, and when you think about it, it, you know, that's really a form of sub-creation, right? You mentioned Eden, and there are two ways to look at sub-creation. You can, maybe this is what that pastor was talking about, you can get in a huff and say, you're not God, what are you trying to do? Or you can say, well, being made in the image of God, this is how we respond. We also use the gifts we've been given to create. And and here in Avatar, we have almost a one-on-one one example of that when it's a sub-creation. We're trying to create our own world, and that itself then is an act of praise. It's a response to this um, amazing, diverse world that we have been given, um, creating one our own, of our own. Imitation, sincerest form of flattery, is, is itself a form of praise. You said earlier, Josh, that one of the uh, prayers was a prayer of lament that you've actually practiced in your church and you have examples in the book as well. So we like to talk about superheroes here and Watchmen has always been a great topic of conversation. You've identified this one uh, as a prayer of lamentation back when Zack Snyder was perhaps more loved by the geeks of the world. 
how do you see this work of his functioning as lament? Yeah, it's, you know, I, biblical lament and prayers of lament, in, they often give it all up to God, right? Saying, we, we can't do this ourselves. We can't fix this. Things are so bad. But they also often end in, in hope, in an expression of hope. And, and I will say, you know, Watchman, I don't think makes it to the hope all the way. It's uh, It could almost be a prayer of anger, which is another category I talk about in the book. Um, but I did include it as a prayer of lament. And, and you can see in this film that I think I put it there because it's that giving up of our own power that makes it really ring true to me as a lament because about superheroes not being able to save us, you know, superheroes who we've held up as this ideal. This is the antithesis movie to Superman, um, that they're not going to be able to fix things either. So in a way, even though you have something like Rorschach um, almost blaming God, there's that one sequence where um, he's pursuing justice and he says something like, God doesn't even care what's going on down here. Um, you have that in the movie, but but really it's this whole general idea of superheroes not being saviors. And, and that's where, um, just before Lament takes that turn towards hope in the Bible, that's kind of the dead end it does arrive at by saying, we, we've got to just throw this, throw this in your lap, God, because we're at our wit's end. So uh, kind of by way of wrapping up, because we are running a little short on time, uh, the Oscars were just announced. And uh, as, as you look over the Best Picture nominees of the year, uh, one I saw on Twitter, you, you remarked how pleased you were that your list aligned so closely, uh, your personal top 10 list aligned so closely with the uh, Best Picture nominees this year. <laughs> yeah, which is rare. I, th- I think this is the closest it's, it's ever been. So. Uh, so what, what, uh, as you kind of look back at 2017, like what, what, were there any, um, any kinds of prayer in, in film that were, you felt were like more prevalent or more prominent this year? Yeah. You know, I can consider my favorite film of the year that way. I I guess I'll say like, this isn't this idea of movies functioning as prayers isn't something like I'm carrying with me into every screening I go into. And it's not really what I'm suggesting people who read the book do either. Um, It's sort of an avenue of interpretation, but it's not the avenue for interpretation. So, um, so I haven't really like, I didn't make my top 10 list function this way, but thinking about it in retrospect, my favorite film of the year is Dunkirk, the Christopher Nolan um, World War II picture. And I wrote about that on Think Christian as, um, you know, being this, this really moving recognition of the need for salvation, because it's a very odd war picture in that it doesn't chronicle a military triumph in any way, um, which we're used to those. And it also doesn't go the pacifist route where it shows us how awful things are in warfare and, and forces us to ask, is this something uh, humanity should even be engaged in. It, it it goes somewhere completely different where it it says that we are not going to be able to, this is tied to lament, we are not going to be able to win this world over. And sometimes we are completely at a loss, no matter how many, hard we try, no matter how many boats we try to get on in order to be rescued, um, completely from outside of ourselves. Um, and so it's this very moving picture of salvation and, 
if we think about those two kids at the end of the film, um, don't, so I won't get into too many details, but um, we do find some survivors in Dunkirk and they have a gratitude there of that experience of rescue that probably would allow you to, to describe Dunkirk as a, a prayer of praise in one way. Hmm. Josh, we're going to have so, to wrap up soon, but I, I just yeah. want to say that you put three billboards as your last pick of the best pictures. Uh -oh. And I would say of all the movies I saw this year, this is the one that most felt like what you were describing in your book about it being a prayer for me personally. There was like this lament about where is the authority that's going to come in and bring justice and like how how do we find justice in the world and all those things, which I loved. And I, I hear that you really dislike that film. And I wonder if you could give us just the short version of why I'm wrong. Yeah, you're, you know, you're not wrong in that uh, I would say very much that movie could function as a prayer of anger. That's what it's all about, right? It's it's this um, bubbling anger that this main character played by Francis McDormand has. I just don't think the movie is very good at pulling off what it's trying to do. For me, it was a, a tonal disaster in the sense that it's, it never knew how to fit its comedy and its anger and it's yearning for justice, um, which it tried to jump around in the same scene so that everything clicked. I, I just kept watching that movie and I thought, man, not one of these sequences has really worked yet. The acting was at odds with the music, was at odds with the camera work. Now, other people, that it didn't bother them at all. They were completely on board. It's been a fascinating film in how it's divided audiences. But, but for me, it was just in terms of form, uh, completely dysfunctional, which didn't allow me to to resonate with the themes that I could tell it was going after. Interesting. I I feel like you and I should go to the movies because I feel like we'd have really good fights afterwards while we were eating something. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> no, I hear what you're saying though. That's really good. Okay. Uh, so we're going to put links to uh, Josh's ranking of all nine of the Best Picture nominees and his uh, link a link to his top 10 films of the year at NorvaRogers.com in the show notes for this episode. Uh, Josh, where else, if people want to follow what you do, where are the places they can connect with you and follow your reviews and your writing? So the place where I do a lot of my theological writing about film is at thinkchristian.net. That's where I'm also the editor. Uh, I have my own website, which is written more for just mainstream audiences, Larson on Film. And you can find me on social media under that uh, handle too, Larson on Film. And then I also do a podcast that is sort of a cinephiles podcast called Film Spotting. And uh, you can find that where wherever you're listening to this podcast. Excellent. Well, before you go, uh, we would love to invite you to participate in our uh, pop culture pick of the week with us, where we throw out a recommendation to our listeners on something that you've been enjoying in pop culture this week. Pop culture. There's a pop. Sure. Uh, yeah. Well, for film spotting, we uh, we always do top five lists, and right now we're working through our top five films of certain years, and we're up to 1983. So sadly, this was the first time, the first occasion I took to watch Martin Scorsese's The King of Comedy with um, Robert De Niro and Jerry Lewis. De Niro is the stalker who, who kidnaps Jerry Lewis's TV talk show host. 